So we are in the midst of the Samson story together. Uh, we've, we've been in that story for the last couple of Sundays, reflecting upon God's work of grace in the midst of a very dysfunctional situation in Israel. And we continue that section today. We're looking this morning at Judges 15, and we'll be looking at the whole chapter together. Judges chapter 15. And before we read our text together, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this beautiful day that You've given. And Lord, it's a delightful day of rest and gladness because it's the Lord's Day. And we thank You for that blessed return week by week where we gather with Your people in Your presence and we hear Your Word. And Lord, we pray that that Word would encourage us, cheer us, challenge us, cause us to seek the only Savior of sinners, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for the illuminating power of Your Holy Spirit to cause the light of Your truth to shine into our hearts as we read this passage together. Give us depth of understanding and use it to encourage us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, again, Judges 15. Let's read the whole chapter together and we'll come back and comment upon it. After some days, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught three hundred foxes and took torches, and he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stack grain and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Temnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Etam. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah, and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? They said, We have come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. Then three thousand men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam, and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, And the ropes that were on his arms became his flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. 
And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck a thousand men. And Samson said, With a jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with a jawbone of a donkey I have struck down a thousand men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramath-Lehi. And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore the name of it was called in Hakore, that it is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines twenty years. Well, thus far, God's Word, and may He help us to understand this very strange passage together. All right, as we reflect upon Samson's exploits in his life, really the one sense overall story of Samson can teach us a thing or two about providence. Now, I don't know if you remember your shorter catechism definition as to what providence is. It's a very helpful way to define it. God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. Providence, we might define it this way, is the constant activity of God to rule and direct all things unto His appointed purpose. But when God is working through a bunch of sinners, the working of His providence can be quite, how shall we put it, Messy. Messy. We see that in the story of Joseph. Uh, We know God is going to save through Joseph, but how Joseph ends up being the Savior is a very interesting and sad tale. Uh, But ultimately, Joseph can say to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. We can see this in the life of Moses. It's God's purpose to save through Moses, but he ends up, you know, being floated down the Nile in, in a basket, literally an ark. And the Lord preserves him, but he's on the run at 40 years old and staying away for 40 years, and then he comes back and God delivers, and it's still a, a messy process. We could see it with David as well, how he's subjected under Saul's tyranny for quite some time as Saul tries to kill him. God's providence at work in sinners can be messy. And we see that in the Samson story. Now, we were alerted to God's overall purpose at the beginning of the story in chapter 13, where we were told when the angel of the Lord spoke to Samson's mother that Samson would be the instrument to begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And we were given a glimpse of that in the last chapter and particularly how messy it was going to be when Samson's lust is the impetus, we might say, uh, for God having an opportunity against the Philistines. In the text before us, the mess remains, and yet the Lord is using Samson as his instrument. Now we're going to think about this passage in three broad headings. And first we're going to see together the folly of God's enemies. The folly of God's enemies. Now there's a sense in which As we look at the whole of the Samson story, that heading works, the folly of God's enemies. Because throughout Samson's whole life, and in escalating fashion, 
the Philistines strike at Samson and it blows up in their faces. They have creative solutions to all of their problems designed to get rid of Samson, but every time they win, they lose. In the previous chapter, when the Philistines, how did he put it, uh, plowed with his heifer, uh, don't try that one, guys. Uh, plowed with his heifer. In response, in burning anger, Samson struck down 30 men of Ashkelon. And it appeared things had returned to normal, and Samson went home mad, and then uh, his father-in-law gave his wife to the best man. Samson's gone. We seem to have peace. And some time goes by, we read in verse 1. However, at the time of wheat harvest which was a time of celebration, usually. Samson comes back to Timnah looking for love. Now, you may buy your wife flowers after a spat. Samson brings a goat. It's quite a practical gift, if you think about it. Flowers are just going to die anyway, and a goat can be useful. But when he states his purpose uh, to be with his wife, his, her daddy has some bad news for him. He thought Samson's anger in stomping off home amounted to divorce. He says in verse 2, I thought you utterly hated her. Hating you hated. It's very intense in the original. And to hate would be the opposite of showing chesed, covenant love, which is a word of marital connection. I thought you hated her intensely, so you were just divorcing her as it were. But that's okay, I can fix the problem. Look, Samson... Here's her younger sister. She's prettier anyway. What a horrible presentation by this father. You, you see something of pagan ethics here, uh, of a discounting of women. It's really sad. But Samson isn't pacified by that. He views what has happened as an attack on him. It was the Philistines who tampered with his marriage to begin with. They threatened his wife. They manipulated her to get the answer to his riddle. And they're the reason for the problem he now has. So he says to them, verse 3, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. Now this little statement, I shall be innocent, maybe gives us a slight window into Samson's conscience. Maybe he feels a sting of remorse for killing 30 men in anger. Maybe he knows deep down that his whole motive to do that was wrong. Yes, God is doing things through him, but that doesn't mean that man is blameless in the things that he exercises. But now he feels completely justified to strike down the Philistines. So that's what he does. And the blow he gives to the Philistines here is both unique and devastating. Samson catches 300 foxes. Now, there's some question really are these foxes or jackals because the the in the ancient world naming the the critter the furry critter that's causing you problems is not as precise as we might want to be in 21st century century western culture we're, we're not really sure it, it could be that it's a jackal jackals operate in packs foxes are solitary creatures whatever the case he, he takes foxes or jackals and he ties their tails together with a torch in between them, so they're, they're kind of back-to-back. -back. And you can imagine as they're running through the standing grain with the torch lit that they're trying to figure out how to get away, and they're stopping because they're pulling one another, which is giving time for the fire to, to be furthered. 
And we know, of course, harvest time is a dry season. Uh, so the standing grain is quickly torched and the stack grain follows suit along with the olive orchards. This is a disaster. It crushes the Philistine economy, but it's a complete act of revenge. Now, what in the world is God doing in this mess? Well, the text doesn't explicitly tell us the Spirit of the Lord rushed on Samson as when the lion ran toward him, but there's no way a man could make weapons out of foxes or jackals without divine enablement. So one writer says this of the incident, it must either be dismissed as fiction or attributed to a power greater than Samson himself. And we have no reason to doubt that just as the Lord came upon him in spirit previously, that he has done so here. The God who sustained Moses for 40 days without food, can, who caused the sun to stand still, that Joseph, sorry, that Joshua might attack enemies, well, he can certainly use Samson to round up some furry creatures and to put torches between their tails. What's the overall point? The Lord is working through Samson, even though Samson's seeking revenge, and even though the crime is blown out of proportion, the Lord is using it to bring judgment on the Philistines. Why is God doing that? Because the Philistines are tampering with the apple of God's eye, His people, Israel. They are oppressing Israel, and Yahweh afflicts those who afflict His people. Now, this should really astound us because what kind of people is the Lord having mercy upon in this passage? Israel. And we're going to see, and I'll make this point to you again, that Israel isn't worth saving. And yet the Lord is acting for their benefit. And yet the folly of Philistia is seen in these men keep trying to fight fire with fire, pun intended. Instead of bowing to a superior God who's using the instrument, Samson, they keep poking the bear. They can't win, but they try to win every time. As soon as the Philistines discover who burned our crops, they react by burning Samson's wife and her father. Now, if you remember from the previous story, that was a threat before. But now they do it. It's a little reminder to us, some irony, that Samson's wife thought she could escape destruction with manipulation, with sin. But she still can't get away from the destruction. She's also a Philistine. Some irony there too. God is coming against the Philistines and she's collateral damage in what the Lord is doing. You can't use your devices to get away from the judgment of God. You can't sin and sin and sin and figure out a way to hide yourself from the judgment of God. That judgment's coming, and it will be a worse fire than what we see here. And yet, as the Philistines do this, it doesn't diffuse the situation. It only makes it worse. Samson's already toying with these enemies of God, and now he has more reason to strike them. He says, verse 7, If this is what you do, I swear... I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. Samson saying, if that's the way you want things to go, I'll hit you even harder. But of course, it's not a pointless striking. 
It's a response to their evil. And we see again the escalation of things. And yet, notice the restraint that Samson expresses. Uh, He says, after this, after I'm avenged on you, after that, I will quit. Of course, the reader is left to wonder, really? Are you going to quit? We know in one sense, Samson's just giving, you know, uh, tit for tat here. But what's God's greater purpose? It's to bring destruction on the Philistines. Samson's not really in control of the situation. And if the Philistines keep afflicting God's people, God will continue to afflict them. Well, what happens in this latest episode, verse 8? He, Samson, struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. The phrase hip and thigh is probably some kind of wrestling idiom. And the idea is that Samson fought them in hand-to-hand combat. But the victory isn't just pinning them to the mat. It's a bloody beating. He's killing men because it's called a literally a great slaughter. Once again, the Spirit of the Lord coming upon Samson isn't mentioned, but let's not think that God isn't acting through Samson. How could one man single-handedly whip a host of Philistines? Whip so many it could be called a great slaughter. He can only do that by divine intervention. And again, the author is showing us the Philistines are outmatched. They can't win. They're outwitted. They're overpowered by the servant of the Lord. And yet, they just keep coming back for more. May I have another, please? Um, This is the blindness, the darkness, and the stupidity of the enemies of God's people. This is the folly of those who refuse to bow to God. They attack Yahweh and attack His servants, and they think they're going to be successful. And it's not just a Philistine problem. It's a sinful man problem. Psalm 2, David asks, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, His Christ, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Evil men despise the rule of God and they think they don't have to answer to Him. They think they can do any wickedness they desire. They can dominate God's people. They can slaughter the weak. They can take whatever they want. But how does the Lord respond to that? When Psalm 2, verse 4, Yahweh laughs. He laughs. He scoffs at the scoffers because their rebellion can't win. They have no hope of victory. For Yahweh has set His King on Zion, His holy hill, and He will smash them to pieces like pottery. Samson isn't yet Yahweh's king, but he's a glimpse of Yahweh's king. He's a savior. And the enemies of God foolishly rage against this savior anointed by the Spirit, and it leads to their own destruction. So it will be for all who oppose the Lord, all who oppress His people. They will be struck and overthrown, conquered, crushed, and they'll collapse. Because you cannot resist the power of God Almighty. Now, brethren, that is meant in this context to comfort God's afflicted people. Shall the enemies prevail? Will they come out on top when they come against us? No, they can't prevail. God will be willing 
to rescue even sin-sick saints. Look at the people of Israel here. They're a mess. And still God is showing mercy to save. Well, that's what He will do for us. Indeed, we didn't suddenly get better when God decided He would send His Son into this world. We were weak, we were without strength, we were enemies of God, we were dead in sin. And God acted in His grace. So remember that. See the folly of God's enemies. They cannot prevail. But then in the second place, see with me, the rejection of God's people. It's a really sad episode we start seeing here in verse 9. After Samson has slaughtered some Philistines, he goes down to the rock of Edom. He stops, as he said he would. After this, I'll quit. Um, But the dense Philistines come again, and this time in greater numbers. Look at verse 9. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah, and they made a raid on Lehi. Now, it's not that the Philistines' uh, all-out assault is really surprising. What's surprising is how Judah responds. They grumble, saying, verse 10, Why have you come up against us? And they say, well, we've come to pay Samson back for what he did to us. Do you see the opposite of the the golden rule here? Jesus tells us to treat others as we would want to be treated. How do sinful men respond? We're going to pay him back for what he did to us. That's the pagan ethic. But then the men of Judah become the pursuers. Verse 11, 3,000 men of Judah exorbitant number to go get one man. They went down to the cleft of the rock at Edom and said to Samson, note their question, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? Think for a second about the craziness of that situation, of that question. And they asked Samson, what is this you've done to us? Now what has happened to the men of Judah? When we started the book of Judges, After Joshua's death, Israel sought to see who's going to carry out the war against the Canaanites. And the Lord says, Judah will go up first. And Judah asked uh, Simeon, his brother, to go up with him. But here, there's a Savior. He's a messy one, but he's a Savior. And they don't pray. They don't cry out to God. They don't ask him to lead them in victory. In fact, they're incensed that Samson would threaten the status quo in the land. The Philistines are our ruler, Samson. Don't you know that? This is just the way it is. What has happened in Israel? If these men had a sense of their sin and their trouble, they would have looked at Samson and seen this is God's instrument to rescue us, and they would have joined him. But they love the darkness. They love their misery and they willingly become lackeys of the Philistines. They actually see deliverance as a threat to their peace. Better to keep quiet and accept God's enemies prevailing. So they announced to Samson, verse 12, we've come down to bind you that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. They're willing servants of the devil. And as we consider the scene Our minds should go to another dark moment in Israel's history when a band of men came to get one man. Jesus asked the chief priests and the officers of the temple, Jews, elders, who came out to arrest him, have you come 
out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour. And Luke specifically says, and the power of darkness. Well, darkness is flourishing here in our text, but of course the darkness is exponentially greater in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as we watch Samson led away in ropes, knowing he could crush them in a moment, we should think of Jesus likewise, willingly giving himself into the hands of evil men. Jesus could have called 12 legions of angels to his defense, but his battle was to be fought in a different way, according to the plan of the Father. And yet in both cases, as with Samson and with our Savior, he was the professing people of God who hand him over, who deliver him up. Both parties claimed submission to the prevailing oppressive power. The Judites say the Philistines rule over us. The Jewish leaders say to Pilate that their king is Caesar. And they accuse him of not being a friend of Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. That's one of the darkest statements in Scripture. How terrible are these scenes, brethren, because they really show us the depth of our own depravity and blindness. We're willing to coddle sin. We're willing to say yes to bondage and keep walking in the way of darkness. We're willing to have a sin overtake us and dominate us and live in it as if there is no possible hope of deliverance. I was thinking as I was reviewing this of how relevant this is today when we have people professing the name of Jesus locked in sexual bondage and saying there's no way to escape it. That is a false gospel. If there's no power of deliverance that reaches to the body and the soul, then we all have no hope. But that's not what we're being taught. In fact, that perspective is seen to be treacherous. Indeed, what hope is there when the enemies of God are no longer regarded as enemies? That's what's happening here. Now, if we're up to you and me, we wouldn't come to the aid of these people. We wouldn't deliver them. They're rejecting God's Savior. And yet what's remarkable is this, the, the display of mercy through Samson, but ultimately from Yahweh. Because it's for the likes of these blind, stupid Judites, a people locked in sin, that God has sent the Savior anyway. So the very act of betrayal is actually going to be used by God to further His purpose. That should strike you. Samson arrives bound at Lehi like a lamb led to the slaughter. The Philistines come shouting to meet him. They're thirsty for blood. They're insulting him. It's reminiscent again of the, the vitriol and violence unleashed at Jesus in his trial and his flogging at the cross. But in this moment with Samson, where death appears to have the victory, the bonds of death are broken. As the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon Samson, verse 15, he finds a fresh jawbone of a donkey. It's fresh because... If it weren't fresh, it would be brittle. That's an important little detail. A fresh jawbone of a donkey, and he put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck a thousand men. One man does battle with a numerous host, 
one man uses an unlikely tool and one man overcomes the enemy. Can you see the theological connections to the Lord Jesus Christ? A cross is an even more head-scratching tool of deliverance than the jawbone of a donkey. But the Lord who ordained Jesus' betrayal, mockery, and death uses this instrument of torture to triumph over the enemy. Indeed, in this moment, there's not just violence unleashed against Christ. Jesus unleashes violence against the devil. 1 John 3.8, what did Jesus come to do? He came to destroy the works of the devil. And how does He do it? Through the cross. So in the providence of God, the rejection of God's people doesn't thwart salvation. It becomes the very pathway of deliverance. And yet, don't think that these Judite cowards get a pass on their treachery any more than Judas was in his unrepentant state rescued or the religious leaders who are the instruments to hand Jesus over any more than they're delivered. The rejection by friends is despicable, but God can use the worst treachery, even betrayal with a kiss, to accomplish His great purpose. What's the comfort for God's people? Well, our God is so great that no matter the folly from within the people of God or without the people of God, nothing can overthrow, overthrow God's rule, God's faithfulness, and God's commitment to show mercy to His people. And that should give us confidence in dark days. Sin may rage. Evil may appear to abound even in the midst of the very people of God, but God is still governing everything. And His purpose stands firm forever. We only need to glance here at a jawbone hill, which is what Ramath Lehi means, by the way, and see the heaps of Philistines slain, or better, we can look at the empty tomb and we can recognize the faithfulness of God will never fail. And yet there's a question that lingers in the text. Will we reject the Lord? Or will we be for Him? Because there's a rejection of the people here. And rejection is still a possibility among us. Will we rejoice in Him who comes to set the captives free and to break our bondage to sin? Or will we love our sin and abide in the darkness? Let those questions not simply pass you by. Let them really search out your heart. Are you longing for God's deliverer? Submissive to Him? Well, finally we see, and this is a brief little episode, the dependence of God's servant. The fight is over. Samson is suddenly overtaken with weakness, with thirst. And we have a reference at the start of this text to, to wheat harvest, you remember. That's a dry time. It's also a hot time. And in God's providence... Such is the case that there's no water source nearby. So for the first time in the entire Samson narrative, Samson does something that godly people usually are found doing. He prays. We haven't seen that. He calls upon the name of Yahweh. That's an indictment on Samson, of course. And Samson says literally, verse 18, You, you have given by the hand of your servant this great salvation... And now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And note the contrast 
between his prayer and Samson's little jingle, his country song that he wrote in verse 16. In verse 16, he said, in rhythmic Hebrew, with a jawbone of a donkey heaps upon heaps, with a jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. His focus is on himself. But now as he prays, we have a twist. He says that Yahweh gave this great salvation himself, right? Yahweh did it. To him belongs the glory. And perhaps to press home to Samson that the Savior has to cry out to be saved, the Lord is, I think, teaching Samson a lesson. Samson's strong and he's fierce and he can rip animals apart with his bare hands, but he's just a man. And he's utterly dependent on the Lord. Again, is that a truth that we all recognize? You may have great gifts, strength, wealth, and intellect, but you're just a man. You're just a frail creature of the dust. And you cannot do anything without the enablement of God Almighty. Must the Lord send some mind-numbing sickness, some painful physical affliction, a lack of urgent needs to show you that your life, that your very breath is sustained by the Lord? Sometimes the Lord sends severe trials to drive us to see our dependence upon Him. Think of Paul with the thorn in the flesh. Let us be a dependent people because that's what God is teaching Samson. And yet notice as we close with Samson's prayer, he seems to grasp the purpose of his birth. He was raised up to begin to save God's people from the hand of the Philistines. But if he dies at Jawbone Hill, he'll fall into the hands of his enemies. And what do you think they would do if they found Samson dead? Well, they would do what they did in 1 Samuel 5 when they took the Ark of the Covenant from God's people and they put it in the house of Dagon. We win. Yahweh is weak. Or what they did with Saul and his sons when they're killed on Mount Gilboa in 1 Samuel 31. They took Saul's armor and they put it in the temple of Ashtaroth and they pinned Saul's body to the wall. Again, your God is weak. Our God wins. The Philistines would despise Yahweh and they would say, we've claimed a great victory over Yahweh in the death of Samson, which would lead not to God's glory, but would lead to subjecting him to shame. He would dishonor his name. Samson, I think, is saying, Lord, this would dishonor your name if I fall into the hands of the Philistines. So he prays for water to revive him. And what does God do? Verse 19, God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi and water came out from it. We should remember, of course, this has happened twice before that God did something like this. Exodus 17 and Numbers 20, as he provides water from a rock for his grumbling people. But no obstacle, not grumbling Israelites, not proud warriors like Samson. No obstacle will stop the Lord's care. You see, our God not only brings great salvation, but our God attends to the details of our needs. Here, providing water for Samson. But don't we see the kind of God that we serve? That He's kind? That He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve? that He's tender towards us, that He's rich, He's abundant, He's gracious, that He will hear us as we cry to Him. So with water flowing, Samuel drinks, his spirit, his strength returns, we might say. 
and it leads to another naming episode. He calls this place now in Hakore, uh, roughly translated Caller's Spring. Caller's Spring. The place is to be a perpetual reminder to everyone that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Things are bleak. The body and soul may thirst, but the Lord hears the needy. And from His kindness, He's willing to give refreshing grace to His people. What's the whole tale teaching? Ultimately this. God cares for His people. Even when they're dense. Even when they do ridiculous things. The Lord cares for His people. And He overthrows their enemies. Brethren, again, may may it encourage you. There's not a lot about Samson that can encourage you. Although Hebrews 11 tells us he, he is a man of faith. I don't see a lot of faith there. If he was coming before us for uh, examination to be received to the membership of the church, we might have some pretty significant questions. But the Lord knows what's in the man. And we have to trust the Lord's judgment about that. But we see God is willing to minister even to the likes of Samson and even to the likes of foolish Judites. Well, may we be encouraged that the Lord would minister even to the likes of us. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we come in thanksgiving because of who You are. A God who is determined for Your purpose to prevail, who will never be thwarted by the enemies of Your people, by Your enemies. A God who is kind, who pours out grace, who's willing to be favorable towards us when we don't deserve Your favor. Father, we pray that You would teach us all dependence upon You. We pray that seeing the kind of God that You are, that we wouldn't resist You or Your sovereign power to drive sin away from us, but rather we would seek You in the day when You shall be found and call upon You while You are near. Lord, have mercy on us and strengthen us with resolve to trust the King who reigns and to not be discouraged in the face of many foes. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.